Welcome to the Job Shop Show, where we talk with the owners, suppliers, partners, and customers of custom manufacturers. Listen and learn the secrets of top-performing job shops, the tools, techniques, and backgrounds that have made them successful, all in the quest of raising the bar for custom manufacturing. I'm your host, Jay Jacobs. This episode is sponsored by Paperless Parts, connecting buyers and suppliers of custom manufactured parts. The Paperless Platform is a secure, ITAR-compliant, cloud-based manufacturing system for suppliers that reduces the amount of time spent on sales, estimating, quoting, administration, and order processing. It offers seamless integration with the accounting and ERP software tools that shops already use, such as QuickBooks, E2, and JobBoss. Paperless Parts was founded with a mission to make manufacturing more accessible by streamlining the quote-to-cash process. Spend less time quoting and more time selling. This episode is sponsored by our friends at the NTMA, the National Tooling and Machining Association. The NTMA is an association of privately held, entrepreneurial-based, and family-owned businesses, representing nearly 1,200 small to mid-sized machine shops and tool and die shops across the country. They have approximately 30 very active regional chapters that host local events, run apprenticeship programs, and provide other services to their regional members. As an association of peers, the goal of the NTMA is to help members of the U.S. precision custom manufacturing industry achieve profitable growth and business success in a global economy through networking, workforce development and training, technology, best practices education, advocacy, programs, and services with industry partners. To learn how your company can get involved with the NTMA, including how to join, visit ntma.org. Shazam! This is Jay Jacobs. Welcome to the Job Shop Show. As shop owners, almost certainly we have parts that go outside for plating and other finishing services. Having a good relationship with our platers was essential to keep our customers happy at Rapid. In the early days when we were not a huge stream of revenue to local platers, it was hard to get their attention. And I would personally at times drop off parts or pick them up from the platers so I could meet the owners and the team members, learn a little bit about their business and how we can make their lives easier. Maybe even drop off some donuts. But I never, to my regret, shared lunch or dinner with one of the owners and really dug into what they do. Well. Today, we have the owner of Global Metal Finishing, Tamia Franco, and I get to have a conversation I wish I had made time for previously. Global is located in the Roanoke, Virginia area and serves customers in the Mid-Atlantic and Southeast area, the Middle East Coast, if you want to call it that. We're going to talk about what it's like to run a plating company, hopefully get into some of the nitty-gritty of plating, and explore how you as a shop can help platers help you and what that means. So let's get into it. Welcome to the Job Shop Show, Tamia. Well, thank you for having me, Jay. It certainly is a, an honor to be here and uh, represent my industry. Yeah, I'm excited. A lot to cover here. I want to start out, though, by asking, getting back to your roots. And you studied watchmaking and a really big word, horology. What is horology and why did you study that? Where did you study it? Horology is watchmaking. I studied it at Joseph Bulova's School of Watchmaking in Queens, New York. They've since closed it down. 
It was taking up a trade. I am very mechanically inclined. And my uncle was a watchmaker and a jeweler. Mm -hmm. And after high school, I went to work with him for almost a year. And I watched him and I'm like, oh my gosh, I'm just passionate about what I see you doing. And a salesman came in and told me about two different schools. And off I went at 18 to New York for a couple of years. Wow. You must have eyes like an eagle because I've seen a simple wristwatch disassembled and there's so many parts and some of you I can barely see. Just tell us a little bit about what goes into a fine mechanically powered watch. Wow. You're asking me to go backwards. I love that. There is a romance that happens when you disassemble and reassemble a watch. You have to understand where the power's coming from and the powertrain. It's a, a world within itself. It's beautiful. And some of the art of watchmaking, it's like anything. If you appreciate fine machining, you certainly appreciate a well-made watch. Absolutely. I'm going to jump forward before we jump back. You are now, years later, the owner of a fairly large plating and finishing company. Can you just, to give us some context, describe Global Metal Finishing today? Global Metal Finishing taken on a life of its own, and I'm so proud of where we are in not only setting up systems that allow us to hear and instantaneously, you call it rapid, respond to our customers and delivery. We understand where we are in the supply chain. And instead of being the low man on the totem pole, I actually said, we've got to stop this. We've got to put ourselves at the top because we're the last work center to touch this part before it's assembled. Mm -hmm. How critical is it that we get all the information up front in order to be excellent. So making it a little more concrete, you have a team of over 30 employees now? That's correct. How, how large are your facilities? Do you have multiple shifts? How we you... have one shift. I haven't quite been able to fully define our capacity and our production line because if we've got it, we can rack it and run it. Mm-hmm. We are at 15, 20,000 square feet. Mm -hmm. We have expanded into several buildings on our property and um, moved out our racking and masking department into another building. And we're getting ready to move into another 8,000 square foot building. Did you put these structures up yourself or did you modify existing structures? Because we'll, we'll talk about the video that was done recently, you have a very clean and modern looking facility. Um, No, I I purchased three buildings on a piece of property about 10 years ago Mm -hmm. and and spent a lot of money upgrading it. Unfortunately, at the time, there weren't any existing buildings in the size. If I had to do it all over again, I would do it differently. Being under one roof certainly helps, but then there are advantages, so many advantages of having separate locations. Mm. Yes, it is clean, and 
yes, I spend a lot of money on maintenance and making sure the preventive measures are taken. How many unique part numbers a day do you process and maybe total part numbers a day or a week? Just to give us a sense uh, of the scope of the parts that are going in and out of your facility. The scope of the parts. I think last week we processed 14,350 parts last mm. week. They range from small to medium to 60-inch bowls. There's never a dull moment in a plating shop. Yeah. Just got to say it. It's, it's always interesting what lands up at our door and what we have the privilege of quoting on. It's, it's quite interesting. Well, I'm going to now ask you to jump back. You studied horology. Sounds like you actually applied the watchmaking skills, and now you're running this large and own this large finishing company. What was the path that took you there? And as part of that, if you could just share with me why you wanted to become your own boss, if that was something deliberate or just happened along the path, but maybe we can just go back to where you got into the coloring of parts. I guess I've been cursed with vision. So when I worked for other people, I always saw better ways we could do things. And that wasn't always welcome. Mm -hmm. Very independent. I'm very, I like to make money because I like to use money. I like equipment. I took the jump from watchmaking into actually selling dyes to universities and colleges. And when you say dyes, you're not talking about the tooling dyes. You're Man. talking about the dyes to make color. The pigments, correct. Yeah. Yeah. And at the time, which was, you know, 30 years ago, a lot of universities and colleges had metal arts programs. Mm -hmm. And they were setting up small anodizing. At the <laughs> universities and colleges. Yeah. So I said, let me sell dye because I didn't think the guy up in Delaware was doing a very good job. And I thought I could do a better job. And quickly found out I was not going to make a living <laughs> selling dyes. So I thought, well, I'm pretty creative. Why don't I design a line of aluminum and leather belts? And that's when I started anodizing. Well, then I got so captivated by the chemistry, it just came to me that I should design a product line that I could sell to other people. So That's when you say you were captivated by the chemistry, you weren't working at a finishing company where that process was explained to you. You, you, <laughs> saw it at, you saw it at your customers, if I'm understanding correctly, and then you decided to figure it out on your own? Well, yeah, basically. Basically, I started by purchasing dyes from Sandoz, okay? Mm -hmm. And they offered a class. And so I went down green as a gourd and um, takeless class on anodizing. Bought a little bit of equipment, started out small, and started anodizing. I, I was literally possessed. I think most shop owners know what that means, mm -hmm. where you cannot stop 
until you get it and you get it right and you understand it completely. And had a young family at the time and had a great time. I just had a great time discovering something that was unknown to me. And I made it my mission Mm -hmm. to let everybody that I met needed to know all about aluminum and how cool this process was. So you were possessed. (laughs) I was possessed. And if I read correctly, that resulted in East West Dicom. That was the company you created? That is the company. And so you were selling products, colored metal, colored aluminum. Right. I was peddling aluminum all the way across the country. Anytime there was a trade show, I started with SNAG, which is the Society of North American Goldsmiths. And those were the teachers and professors that were teaching metal art. Mm -hmm. So here I come with aluminum and they're like, what is this? I mean, you know, aluminum product line. And what was interesting at that time is I loved so much the chemical reaction of the surface of the aluminum that I sold sheets of aluminum that had been, I called it, ready to color. So I prepared the aluminum sheet and sold it to artists so that they could color it with organic ink, either the dyes that I sold or permanent magic markers. Mm -hmm. And then they would stamp out from the sheets the components that they were using to make jewelry or, yeah, it's pretty interesting. Now you are a service company. How did you transition from selling those products to being a provider of plating and finishing services to other shops? Well, the market that I created were artists, and then it became into craftspeople Mm -hmm. who wanted to make high-end jewelry. Mm -hmm. And then word got around town. Once I moved my business out of my house, everything changed. Okay, so that's lesson number one for an entrepreneur, move your business out of your house. Oh, yeah. Oh, life is so much better. Then a OEM in town came and asked if I could help them with their anodizing. They were sending it up north, and um, they couldn't get response, you know, and I was very reluctant because I didn't have the equipment I needed to test it to test the thickness. I had the, the formulas. I knew the chemistry and the electricity, but I didn't know how to validate what I was doing. And they were okay with that. They actually were pretty great about giving me the opportunity to read blueprints. And, and not that I hadn't read blueprints in the past, because I had, but I had two different markets and it grew. Both of them grew. The product line required color critical, mm-hmm. uh, price sensitive. The engineering is black and white and, you know, blueprints, blueprints, follow mm-hmm. the blueprints. And I, I actually had to pay a marketing group to come in and help me dissect the business because it had gotten very complicated and it just got complicated. I didn't know where I was making money. I couldn't tell you where I was making money. Okay. I thought it was one way and come to find out 
it was less troublesome to service the OEMs than it was to sell a product line. So in 2010, I started moving out of that arena. Still have customers call me, which is nice, but I don't offer 35 different colors. Was that hard to leave something that you had done for a while and probably had a lot of great relationships, but no, it's not the future. It's not where you're making money and, and making money isn't everything, but it's, it's important, particularly if you're trying to grow. So just thinking that that must've been tough for you oh, to it was, say goodbye. It was, it was, it was painful. And I drug it out for about three years. You know, I mean, I had customers that built their livelihood on what I provided them. Mm. And they would place any size order I requested of them. So I'd say, look, $5,000 order, it's got to be that. I can't do it for less than that. And it just, it, it was very difficult. And money was so important. Every penny counted. And um, yeah, it, it was difficult to turn something away. And then I'm in a small shop at the time, and we had three shifts at that time, mm -hmm. you know, running 24 7. Okay. And then when I buy the property where we're located now, we went from doing everything by hand mm -hmm. to a semi automatic. We've got We've got hoists and controllers, and we've got different equipment now. And that was a 24-month learning curve to get the chemistry right, the temperature right, the speed, and all of those details in line. It took a, it took a while. Well, that's a great segue into the nitty-gritty of plating. So... Maybe we could just start with, and I know you do more than anodizing, but what is anodizing? I'd love to just have you give us a primer on not only what it is, but how it works and what are the different steps in the process that we would see, or maybe we'd see it, but we wouldn't even think of them being a step. If, if we're well, before through. I answer that question, mm -hmm. Your listeners need to know that surface finishing and metal finishing mm -hmm. are different. So surface finishing is whatever texture, polish that you apply to the surface is exactly how it's going to come out unless you tell us you want it otherwise. So we're using chemistry we can use chemistry to change the surface finish. In anodizing, we need more than anything power. We've got to have a lot of power and water. And so we take the parts that you send us and we read your blueprints and we decide, especially on a critical part, and that's probably global metal finishings biggest feather in our cap is that we're not afraid to tackle those tough, critical jobs. And having a real solid quality system makes a heck of a difference in that 
everyone embraces what we need to do to get it right the first time. And so we do a contract review. We bring rackers. We bring the line guys. We even bring our dry-to-pack people in on a contract review. And we all sign off that we're agreeing that we're going to do it that way. And the parts are either sent to the masking department or racking. They are racked and sent to production. And that is where... Excuse me. Yes. What is racking? Racking is where you physically fixture the part onto a, we call it a rack, but that allows the current to change the molecular structure of the surface. Mm -hmm. So current goes through the rack. We can only use aluminum or titanium racks. So you would never just drop the parts in vats? No, we're not dippers. (laughs) Okay. There are dippers out there, but I'm sure they don't like to be called dippers either. Okay. Sorry, I'm just, I'm such a novice at this. It might be interesting for your listeners to know that where we rack the part to make the electrical contact is critical to the critical surface areas that are on the print. We don't always know unless an engineer has specified rack in this hole or rack on the outside of the surface. Mm-hmm. And there are times where we guess and there are times where we just can't figure out how to fixture it. In that case, we call the customer. What happens if you rack it in the wrong place? We either have to strip it and rework it. No, I mean, from the customer's perspective, what, what goes wrong if it's racked in the wrong place? It could be a um, where you rack the part, where you fixture it, sometimes the electrical contact does not allow it to fully cover those rack marks. Mm-hmm. So you have a rack mark. Okay. And our job is to minimize that rack mark. Mm-hmm. So the rackers are always looking for ways to sometimes you see it, sometimes you don't. And their job is to make sure it's minimal. I interrupted you, but you were going through the process. It it, it gets racked, and then what happens after that? And then it goes to the process line. We have staging areas in our our staging hallway, we call it. And the guys on the line will organize the jobs according to – the current density that so, they have on the on the rectifier, if that makes sense. So, so they, the rectifier allows you different current densities. Correct. It determines what current density you would want for a particular part. Well, it depends on the shape of the part and whether the blueprint is calling for anodizing or hard coating. Mm-hmm. So for anodizing, we typically run 15 amps per square foot. For hard coat, it's 25 to 30 amps per square foot Hmm. at a much lower temperature in the acid tank. How does temperature change the 
process. That, to me, that's not intuitive. The temperature would be a big factor. Well, we're working with sulfuric acid mm-hmm. and electricity. So we're building up heat all the time. So we have a pretty big chiller. We have a 60, t- 60 or 80 ton chiller mm. that chills two very large tanks, 2,000 gallons of sulfuric acid at 20%. So, yeah, we've got to control the temperature. But why does why? hard coating use a lower temperature than Because you can, you, you've got to, you've got to hit the surface of that really hard with current to make the cell structure condensed and hard. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so you've, you've got to hit it hard. So that generates more heat, and, and that's why you have to have the lower temperature? Yes. And yep. what, what would happen if you anodized, and I say I know hard coating is anodizing, but the typical anodizing, what would happen if you did that at the same temperature as the hard coat? Your question is if I anodize, if I hard coated. No, if you, if you anodized a part at the same temperature that you typically hard coat, why do you have to have a higher temperature for a standard anodizing? Well, you could speed hard coat if that's what you're referring to. Um, well, it's the cost. I mean, lowering the temperature costs a whole lot more than keeping it uh, at 60 okay. or 70. Th- no, that's, that's the answer then. So, yeah. yeah. Okay. Interesting. So I think of more the parts coming from the sheet metal world and the machining world. And we typically had a lot of, I don't know, grease and other things on the surface of the parts when they left the shop. I assume that that's important to remove any of the lubricants or greases or things like that before you plate? Yes. We we ask our customers to clean their parts before they send them to to us. We have chemistry to clean parts, but it's it contaminates and it goes through the whole process if it's not off first. So we've, we really ask our customers to own that part of the process. We still clean them. Oh, and we do ultrasonic cleaning and offer lots of different prep, but we can't have drippy, oily parts. Right. It, it just contaminates everything. And I imagine you said your process is now semi-automated. I've seen parts that were anodized that have fingerprints on them, which probably meant it was a manual process and somebody touched the part after it was cleaned before it went through. Is that a correct assumption? You know, that, that's a really slippery slope right there. If a machine shop touches their parts and leaves if they've got a lot of acid in their body, mm-hmm. that actually etches into the metal. Oh. And we can't remove that. Our cleaning uh, uh. can't always remove it. It's the same with water spots. If a machine shop doesn't blow their parts dry and they leave the water drops, we, we can't get those water drops off. It penetrates the surface. Interesting. I had never thought about that, but that makes a lot of sense. I have a whole bunch of other questions here. Is there anything you want to keep going with on the process that 
we need to know about? I, I, I would encourage all of the listeners that have machine shops to visit their platers, their anodizers, and see how they operate. And there are lots of things. We're getting ready to roll out a, a campaign, a help us help you program where mm -hmm. we can share these details. So many people are leaving companies and new faces, new education. It's really important that we all stay on the same page, especially with the knowledge that we have. So I'd encourage your listeners to go and visit, take the time, mm -hmm. understand what they need, and you certainly will get your job done the way you want it. Part of getting the job done is sometimes coming up with some crazy colors. And I remember some of the colors that would be requested by our customers and come back. Some of the blues were just fantastic. How do you color in the anodizing process? How do you inject that color? How does it chemically work? Well, you have two options. You can submerge the parts in an aqueous dye solution, or you can take dye and mix it with a, um, not acetone, what is the, a, a different uh, type of vehicle to deposit the pigment into the pore structure. So for instance, one of the things that I used to do was screen print on anodized sheets. Mm -hmm. That's an ink, but you can also take powdered dye and mix it with the ink to get a different color and screen print. It leaves a residue on the surface. Once you've sealed it, you've got to remove that residual product. So if I'm understanding correctly, adding the color, do you go through the same process to a certain point for every color and then the color is added at the end? Or do you have different tanks in the middle of the process depending on what color it's going to be? Well, when you're anodizing, you're building that pore structure that allows it to accept the dye. Mm -hmm. So you've got to go through the cleaning, etching, deoxidizing, and then anodizing. From that point, the pore structure is in place and, and you can color it. Wait, let me, if I could, because I know I'm, I'm, I'm going, uh, jumping back, but you met, we talked about cleaning. What are etching and deoxidizing? So etching is removing natural dirt and natural. oxidation off of the surface. You don't even see it sometimes hmm. with your naked eye, right? If we didn't do it, and ran it through the anodizing tank, where you would see it is if you dyed it, you would see uh, little white spots. So that's okay. the real reason we... And we, how do you etch and deoxidize? Is that a chemical process? Does it also involve it electricity or... Just temperature. Oh. Uh, etching is heated up, and there are two main different types of... Uh, etching 
compounds you can use, sodium hydroxide or uh, potassium hydroxide, and you submerge it just a little bit of time, and I'd say 30 seconds. Depends on how rough sheet metal we would leave in much longer than we would a very critical part. Okay. So that's almost, I I think, uh, if you seen a piece of aluminum that's been outside for a while there's this very obvious oxidizing of the white powder yes. that you you would call it is that the same thing but in, in a more microscopic less visible sense correct and sometimes if something has been weathered like that again water's touched it it's changed it we can't always get those things off of the surface oh, yeah that makes a lot of yeah. sense so you so, so then you anodize it and you're preparing you said the pore structure to accept color correct but let me back up just a little bit sure in our science discussion yeah um we also offer an acid etch now an acid etch is different than a sodium hydroxide etch in that it can literally make the surface matte so if a customer doesn't want a reflective mm. finish, they can request the acid etch. Mm. Some anodizers offer both and do both. There's some new chemistry that's just recently come out. An anodizer up in Pennsylvania has been working on it. And um, it is supposed to replace the etching and deoxidizing. It's supposed to be an all-in-one. We just got a drum of it and we're just starting to test it. So it's so, pretty exciting. I think that that's really cool because in my mind, I think that this is a process that's just been known about and, and done for such a long time. There wouldn't be a lot of innovation left in it. But here you, you're talking about some state-of-the-art innovation that's, that's happening today that's in the sense in the beta so yes. that's very cool. Yes, it's very cool. So now we're back to deoxidizing. I, I, and I, but I just want to throw in there, and it makes me just think of how the surface finish that we prepared before the parts went to the plater definitely made a difference in the coloring. Uh, and I'm thinking the blacks in particular, where the polished machine surface, as opposed to maybe the surface of a raw casting compared to the sheet metal that was untouched versus maybe it was polished or the weld areas. There's so much variability in how the process takes based upon the preparation of the metal ahead of time. It, and it could vary from batch to batch depending on if we, we were more of a prototype shop, so we didn't control the finishing as critically probably as some folks do in production. Right. And some shops, I mean, purity, the purer you can be about how you process something. And mm -hmm. let's just take, for instance, bead blasting. Mm. Yes. It, it is a sin to bead blast an aluminum with media that has been used for other metal. That's, yes. that's a huge no-no. And you don't see it until after it comes out of <laughs> I, the steel tank. I, I, I've lived through that. No, yeah. I, I understand. So that's 
extremely important in our world. So many questions. If a park just was anodized, what color would it be? When do you start? So is a black a dye that's added? Yes. Is clear the natural color? Clear is the natural color. Okay. So black's your basic dye that almost every plater, I think, has that capability. Yes. Yes. Can you get blacks in different dye colors? Because I, I just think of black, but of course in powder coating, there's all sorts of blacks. Yeah. You can. You can get different blacks. I've experimented with a few, but if you don't mind, let me back up. Um, sure. Anodizing clear is just the surface, but anodizing hard coat, because you're putting a thicker layer of oxidation on the surface, mm -hmm. more compact, it's a dark gray. Yes. If the temperature is lowered. Now, I talked earlier about purity. I was trained in the old school of hard coating. And when I found out probably 10 or 15 years ago that we could actually run hard coat at 50 degrees and still pass a salt spray test, um, my lead anodizer at the time and I ran the test panels. We wanted to see it. And it was a lighter color and it passed the salt spray. Hmm. But we chose not to do it that way because we felt like if a customer was paying us for hard coat, by God, we needed to give it to them. So that's why we continued to provide a extremely hard, hard coat. That was one of the questions I was going to ask you, why hard coat clear comes out that color. And if I understand correctly, it's because of the density, the, the, the thickness that's built up and that... Yes. And you have to remember that hard coating and anodizing are pretreatments for paint. Now, as crazy as that sounds, mm -hmm. some of the defense requirements are hard coat it clear and then send it to the painter. <laughs> mm -hmm. So sure. it's really not going anywhere. <laughs> <laughs> it's not going to chip off or be conductive. There are many reasons why people want to anodize or hard coat parts, but one of them is to make the surface harder. So compared to a piece of 6061 T6 standard machine material and one that's been anodized versus one that's been hard coated, how much harder do you get in anodizing, regular anodizing, and then how much even harder do you get by hard coating? I think the rock, you know, I don't know the Rockwell number for anodize. I know it's for hard coat. It's around 50. I don't know what that number is for. I know that when we measure the thickness, it's seven tenths of a mil for anodize. Mm -hmm. Hard coat, the thickest we've ever been able to hard coat with our current rectifier is three and a half mils and the customer wanted that thick a coating because they then wanted to polish it mm. so and sort of going back to the basics when you are doing both processes are you 
tightening the molecular structure? Is that how it gets the hardness? Yeah, we're using current density, temperature, and acid concentration. Those are the three things that we have to control in the anodizing tank. Mm -hmm. But those make the molecular structure on the surface more dense. Correct. The variables are, if you add more acid, you can get a bigger pore. Okay. okay? You lower the temperature, you get the smaller pore. Well, I'll just throw it out there. You would think that if you make something more dense, that it would get smaller. But you actually add thickness when you anodize and hard coat. Yes. How does that happen? Well, you're building that pore structure, and it's growing the longer you leave it in the tank. But, but wouldn't the pores be collapsing? They do collapse if you over-anodize. I think that the last time we ran those tests, that was years ago, mm-hmm. we saw them collapsing about two mils. So there's a window where the temperature's too high, the pore structure starts to collapse on each other, and it mm. won't accept dye. It will in places where it hasn't fallen. Interesting. I didn't know you could over-anodize a part. Yeah, you can. What is the difference between hexavalent and trivalent chemical conversion coating? Well, hexchrome is extremely dangerous to human beings and the environment. And even though I, in my world, I love hexchrome. It's just, it's, it's got a self-healing feature about it that if a surface is scratched, the hex chrome will mend itself. It creates like a, a, a bond within the st- structure of the molecules mm-hmm. and it heals itself. Now, you've seen the airplanes out in Arizona that have all this yellow hex chrome. Mm-hmm. Um, be great if someone could come up with a way to extract all of that easily. Um, the trichrome is just easier to, and, and you, you can convert it. You can convert hexchrome to trichrome. Trichrome is what uh, Europe and, you know, a lot of countries want the Rojas compliant trichrome. So it's a more environmentally friendly? Yes. yes. Gotcha. It hasn't as far as the chemistry's been around for probably 15 or more years, but it's still very sensitive. It's a, it's a sensitive chemistry. What's the toughest plating process for you or platers in general to control and make sure you get right by? I haven't done electroless nickel, although I have studied it for quite a few years. Um, I, I would think that that is probably one of the most difficult. I think we've got most everything under control. It took a while to do that, but we've got most everything in control. Really, the most challenging thing we have is is the coloring from batch to batch. And what do you have to pay attention to there? making sure that everything is documented 
the way it was anodized, the acid concentration, the temperature, the number of parts on the flight bar, mm. so that we can replicate mm. the exact same thing over and over again. And, and the dye requires uh, controls. You know, pH range is very critical in dye work and the time that it stays and the life of the dye. There are some jobs we only run a few loads through and then we make another dye tank. Hmm. Even if you got that all perfectly duplicated, you still could have a gradient color change possibly if there was enough of variability in the actual raw metal from say one metal source from another metal source, is that correct? Yes, yes. And we've done a deep dive into the quality of our water. We just oh. got a new uh, RO and DI system installed this year. And even the quality of the water can shift the dye work. I really enjoyed asking you some of these nitty gritty questions. Oh, and I do have one more, but is there anything else you want to put out there in terms of technicalities of the plating process, things that we should know? Well, it's funny. I've never wanted to make my problems, my customers' problems. But now I realize uh, I've, I've taken a different stance and the more information we can get from the machine shops that send us work, mm -hmm. it requires them to ask all the tough questions to the OEM, mm -hmm. you know, Recently, Ben was invited by a machine shop down in North Carolina to go and talk to the OEM. Mm. And the more we have that opportunity to sit in front of the OEM's face to understand exactly what they want, mm -hmm. the better it is for everyone. And the quicker we can deliver and get in the price range. I mean, that's the thing. If we have to keep reworking and guessing what you want, it just costs a lot of money. I think unnecessary money. It's planning. That's, you know, that's the most time consuming thing should be the planning. I want to definitely get into that in a second, but that relates to the question I wanted to ask you is how easy is it to remove plating? and start over again. Sometimes you don't have that shot. Okay. Um, how easy is it? It's, it's not easy. We have perfected a way to do it, and we cross our fingers that we're not compromising a critical surface. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we had a situation early this year, new customer, they sent us a drawing that said hard coat and in the fine print it said one or on the purchase order excuse me on the purchase order we missed the purchase order it said one mil buildup well boy we were so happy when those parts came out they were beautiful mm -hmm. we over hard coated it and the customer couldn't use it and thought we were going to have to scrap them all and as it turned out, we had to go back to the science board, remove it, and re-hard code it. 
and we were able to to win so it's it's not easy it depends on how critical the surface is and that swings us back to what you were just talking about how we as shops can help you succeed and make sure that we're getting our customers what they're looking for from you and there definitely was not clarity of information in the example you just spoke about. Do most of your customers give you drawings or prints? Do they give you 3D information? How do you get information to know what to do? And what's the best information you can get? Well, the best information is the 3D models. I mean, that's beautiful. Um, we haven't always gotten it. But we're not taking the risks of guesswork anymore. So we've, we have been gently changing the behavior of our key customers and requiring prints. So that sounds like they weren't always giving you prints before. No, 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 they didn't. And how would the instructions, that seems to me ludicrous because... <laughs> I know what the drawings are so detailed in what they call out from the OEM. So how, well, how would they give you that information? They would, they would put it on a purchase order. And when they messed up on whether it's type two or type three and fat fingered it, and mm -hmm. we'd call and we'd say, Hey, you know, this would really be good if you could give us the print, but let me just tell you that not all machine shops and OE want you to know who their customer is. They used to be very protective and I don't know, everything was a big secret. And not that we would share any of that with anybody, mm -hmm. but there was a insecurity. I guess that's insecurity about it all. And when you've been in business for a while you, and, and you have your non-compete uh, and non-disclosure agreement up on your website, that helps, you know, and we take it very seriously in our shop, very seriously. It sounds like, though, if you are a shop, it is advantageous for a number of reasons to send you a print. Oh, yes. If, if you have it on typically you have it. How does the 3D model help you? What are the benefits for you having a 3D model as well as the print? Well, it was interesting. Last year, we had a customer up in Maryland, Mink Hollow. They sent us 3D prints and we couldn't open them. We had to call our IT group and say, what's going on? The level of detail that the masking department could see because this engineer color-coded everything he wanted us to mask. Oh, that's so cool. <laughs> and it was so, I mean, we were just standing in front, of the, in, the, in front of the computer and saying, look at this, how exciting to see it. Then, of course, we would mask it up, take a picture, and send it to him. You got it. You got it. So that is um, one of the reasons we... We get clear instructions with the visual. So with the 3D. my takeaway here is that if you have masking on your part, you should 
take the time to put it on your 3D model. And that's so easy to do in SolidWorks and many of the other systems, and then include that as to your machine shop or sheet metal shop. Yes. And so that they can provide that to the plater. Yep. It's a win-win when you got that. What's your stance now if someone doesn't send you a 2D drawing or print? Are you still quoting them or where do you stand? <laughs> We've given it back to the customer to say, if we don't have a print and we're relying on your purchase order, we're going to do what we always do is anodize or hard coat. If we miss anything, it's on you. So no, we don't turn down work. But if we have to play that game of call, wait for you to return the call, you know, it slows us down. And our job is to save the machine shop time, get their orders out on time without any delays in our shop. Makes me think that we would sometimes have mismatches between 3D data and the drawing and sometimes the customers would get uppity and I just put the question to the people in my company who talk to them if you and of course you have to value the customer relationships but sometimes you could get a little cheeky and say how does this fit in with your ISO or AS uh, quality <laughs> system because it doesn't seem like that would be permissible and just leave that hanging and, and yeah. let them understand that they are responsible for the from the quality systems that they've signed up for to have consistency between the different data sources and right. disorders are one of them yep so that's a anyways one of my one of my little pet <laughs> peeves with the uh the, the i'll call it sloppiness you have evolved a lot as a shop over the years and you had shared that you hired, and I'll try to pronounce his last name correctly, uh, Al Vasilaukis. Yes. yes. And yes. he came in as a COO about three years ago and put into place a lot of processes and structures. And first of all, why did you feel that you needed to hire someone like Al? And what was that journey toward that realization? And what were the benefits bringing Al in, what has he done to help Global? Well, <clears throat> about four years ago, I looked at my financials and I looked pretty healthy, but I wasn't healthy. Hmm. I wasn't healthy. As a business owner, I felt like I was pulling my hair out and some of my management team, and look, Ben is the only one left. <laughs> so hey. I, I went back I started thinking, well, where can I get help? I need help. Why don't I feel better about this business? And I went to SCORE. And what is SCORE? SCORE is the retired executives that work with the SBA. Mm -hmm. So they're funded by the SBA. And 30 years, when I first started this idea of wanting to start a business, East West ICOM, I went to SCORE. Mm. And the guy says, your business plan stinks. Go get a job at Burger King. I'm like, what? <laughs> you are kidding me, right? But I needed to hear that. I needed that naysayer in my court. Hmm. 
Well, then I go back to SCORE, and they're like, let us come in and, you know, meet with some people there. After they met with us, they said, you need more help than we can give you. We know a guy who's retired. Let me give him a call and see if he'd be interested. Two weeks later, John Somerville from the local SCORE group brings in Al. And Al and I looked at each other. I gave him the tour. And I said, do you think you and I can work together? He said, I don't know. Let me sleep on it. Call me next Tuesday. I called him the next Tuesday. And he said, look, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to come in one day a week and offer my help this way. Like, okay. So he wanted to come to our first business meeting with Mm -hmm. the team that I had at the time. And I hadn't really worked with a lot of different people before. I didn't know what talent looked like. Okay. I knew I'm driven. (laughs) I'm going to get it done come hell or high water. But I, I couldn't really get the best out of my team. The best was not good enough. And that's what Al ended up seeing. Hmm. And he came in once a week for about two months. And then he started coming in three days a week. And he was a business advisor. Okay. Mm-hmm. So I was paying him like a consultant. Mm-hmm. And then he, he really got hooked. Like most people in metal finishing. <laughs> You see processes, you've got chemistry, you've got electricity, you've got interesting things going on, you want the best results. And his whole background was in things not metal finishing. He was in cement and a separation company. Great career and so grateful to have him. Hey, he studied with Deming. Really? I studied with Deming. And for the audience, Deming is the godfather of quality. Yes. And so Al became an employee six months after. And really, my husband calls him the global metal finishing bouncer. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. But he brought the order together and still is. Yeah, he's done a he's done a lot for me because he understood me. You know, it's so nice to have someone who is like minded understand the challenges you're you're faced with. And I had read that you equated it to the book by Jim Collins in Good to Great and his concept of getting the right people on the bus in the right seats, and that's what Al helped you do in your organization. Al has done. Yes. Yes, he has. And as part of that, you had said that you've become more of a data-driven company. And what does that mean? Well, for me, it's analyzing the data differently than I ever have before. Mm-hmm. Data is a fact at a certain point in time, okay? I had done that my whole career, but mostly in my head. Mm. We had done run charts before Al came, but if someone left, 
and I didn't fill someone to continue the run charts, it got dropped. So now we've, we've got more consistent data and we're, we're not data mining just to data mine. Mm -hmm. We're doing things, we're looking at things that are directly affecting the quality, the end result, and the customers, you know? What sort of tools do you use for collecting data, analyzing it, putting it in the right place so the, the right so people can access everybody it? Everybody can access it. Right. So, you know, there's a, there's a whole training. You've got to train your people to understand what the data means and how they can directly influence the data. We have an ERP system. What percent would you say you use of it? Because there's so much in ERP systems that do you... Oh, look, Tracy and our new chemical analysis um, graduate just brought on Tableau. I don't know if you know what Tableau is. No. Whiteboard. That they can grab data out of the ERP and, and put it on run charts. So how much of the ERP system are we using probably 60 percent mm -hmm. and looking for other they've made improvements in in our ERP system which is shop tech just got sold <laughs> not so happy about that but um, paperless parts I mean I, I can't tell you how excited I am for two years Al and I worked on our front end pricing structure with Ben. And of course I'm reading everything I can trying to figure out how, how can we look at our business as a fixed cost? How can hmm. we, how can we manage that? And how can we make money? When I was first introduced to paperless parts, I always think there's a savior out there <laughs> for, my, for my problems, okay? And what paperless parts is giving. Now, we're almost there, but we're not there yet. What I wanted was everything done on the front end. And my guys didn't want to do it that way. I mean, for years. Let's do everything on the front end. Send the acknowledgement. Our ERP system can do it. Let's give them the quote. We're smart enough. We've been doing this long enough. We know what it's going to cost. Mm -hmm. And with paperless parts, it's becoming pretty seamless. And the back and forth within that software is beautiful. <laughs> Everything is right there for everybody to see. And the security. I mean, gosh, if you do defense work, you better have your security under control and tested. Absolutely. For years, we talk about blueprints. If our customer asked us to hold the blueprints, we would file them. And at the end of the year, we'd send them back to them. You're talking physical blueprints. Physical blueprints. We'd have file cabinets full of blueprints. Hmm. Wow, it's a lot of responsibility. Yeah, it's a lot of handle. It's just a lot of wasted resources. How did you quote 
before? Did you use E2 or did you use a Excel and QuickBooks? How did you get the quotes out to the customers? Excel and then rolled it into E2. And what were the benefits that you've seen by using paperless for the estimating and the quoting from a plating perspective? Um, consistency. And, you know, if there was any complaint from a machine shop, it would be, why is it this and then this price? And sometimes we couldn't always tell them, you know, it's because you only sent five parts that it's costing the minimum mm -hmm. and you sent a hundred over here and that's why you're getting them for a buck and a half each. They didn't always see that. And with paperless parts, we can show them exactly what the minimum is. Couldn't, couldn't do that easily in E2. That makes sense. And I'm thinking if you get a 3D model, there's probably pieces of information that you guess upon right now if you have only a print, such maybe surface area and, I don't know, volume, things like that. But from a 3D model, you get that exact. Yes. Is that useful to you in your coding oh, process? Yes, most definitely. You know, Ben could answer on that in more detail, but um, yes, a 3D gives us everything we need. And it, I would assume makes it more accurate, makes it faster because you don't have to make those calculations yourself and right. gives, as a result, a better price to your customers. Yes. And one that's, uh, fair, one that's fair to you, but one that's fair to them. Right. And I'm not really privy to the blueprint world. But I can remember years ago, a, a big OEM not far from us had a masking job and a hard coat job. So we had to mask the surface and hard coat it. Mm -hmm. And I went to them. I'm like, oh, my gosh, I'm going to have to charge you $450 to mask this piece and $200 to hard coat it. Why don't you skim the surface off? Right? Why don't you skip? Let me and hard coat the whole daggone part, and then skim the surface off. You're going to save four hundred and fifty dollars. Nope. Sure. Can't do it that way. We're going to have to change the print in order to do it that way. Well, who made the print? Oh, the print was made you know thirty, forty years ago, and it and it's a government print, and we can't change it. Hmm. And so, in my world of saving money. I want to make money, but I sure as heck do not want my customers to give me a blank check. I want it to be a fair and equitable transaction. Mm -hmm. Oh my gosh, one of our best customers, we asked him, we had a handful of new people that we wanted to teach blueprint reading to. And I said, hey, can you send one of your guys down? We'll pay him. We'll mm -hmm. do whatever it takes. And we got 100 prints out. And he started going through them. He says, good print, crappy print, good print, crappy print. And one, I won't say the name of the company, but they clearly have not invested in updating their prints. Mm -hmm. And that was what he saw. He's like, they have cut all kinds of corners in these prints by revision, revision, and change this, but a look at this. Uh, legend, but don't do this. And 
the good prints you could easily read, you could easily follow, you knew where the critical areas were. Someone took the time to clearly communicate what was required for the machinist and the metal finisher. I love the tips that you're giving us as shop owners to make us more successful uh, with you or make you more successful in serving us as customers. I wonder, you are sort of an anomaly in the manufacturing world, in the job shop world, in that you are a woman owner. Can you share any experiences that other women who are desiring to own a custom manufacturing company or perhaps are in a generational situation where they may take over a family business, any experiences that would help them be successful in manufacturing? Hmm, interesting question. For me, it's exciting because of the challenges. Recently, I was reading about the difference between men and women, and this is my own words, not the book I was reading, but women tend to internalize a lot of issues in running a business. Men deflect, okay? But when men deflect or, or internalize something, their consciousness level increases. It's the same with women. When women cannot internalize it and they can deflect and it makes them better leaders, it makes men and women almost equal in that we're not taking things personal and there's a lot of groundwork that's already been done. Lord have mercy. I couldn't not do what I'm doing. I had weaved around on different roads trying to find out what was I really, really good at. Uh -huh. And I'm not really good at organizing, but I am good at coming up with ideas and seeing the long view of where we could land. And I think women today, especially women in manufacturing, they can write their own ticket. Learn as much as you can about everything. Oh, Lord, can you see a woman-led business that did nothing but rewrite blueprints? I mean, that'd be cool. <laughs> Wouldn't that be cool? And it sounds like there's a need so there's, for it, too. <laughs> yeah. Well, and there's a lot of opportunities for men and women. I mean, everything is changing. It is, to me, so fulfilling to be in this seat to see all of the changes and improvements in manufacturing, in relationships, in regulatory bodies. Mm. We're not fighting. I, you know, what goes on out in the news is another thing, but we're not fighting. We're working together, even my competition. I have always viewed competition as, hey, if I can do it better, by God, I'm going to do it better never want to take food out of your mouth. But if I can do better, and then it's mine. And I just think it's so exciting to, with technology and the different changes that are going on, it's open up. I'm trying to get my granddaughter into manufacturing and she's like, no, Vovo, I don't want to do that. I don't want to be a machinist, Vovo. She would be really good. 
then there's so many different things to do besides being a machinist. So. Yes, there are. <laughs> in manufacturing. And, yes. And I look at the number of young women I see on the first robotics teams and all the different roles there are on the teams that you would not necessarily think of when you think of a mechanically focused product, but they all come together. It, it is a team and it's needed and encourage perhaps anyone listening who has a, someone, a young woman who wants to get into manufacturing if there's in high school, encourage them to get involved in first because that's a first step into the world. And I know it's launched a number of young women today. Yes, 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 yes. Well, Tamia, thanks for being on today. This was a really good time for me because I got to ask you all these questions on plating. And sorry if I wandered around a little bit there, but I just, again, had so many questions. You're a great example of why I'm doing this podcast because I, I get to learn from an expert, a global leader in <laughs> the field of plating and finishing. And I thought it was great how we pulled out some of the ways that the listeners can work better with the platers and finishers. And very appreciative of your time. Thank you. What you've shared with us. I do have one last question, which will probably tie in together a lot of what we talked about. At the end of the day, how do you know if you had a good day or a bad day or maybe just a so-so day? And in other words, how do you measure success, either consciously or subconsciously? Um, for me, success is accomplishing something, finishing something every day that at the end is going to really impact the business or my personal life. Yeah. It's finishing something. That's awesome. Thank you for sharing. And thank you again for being on the podcast. Thank you, Jay. Any last comments or words? Everybody keep up the good work. A lot of good things going on in this country. A lot of opportunities, a lot of inventive ideas. Everybody keep up the good work. How can people reach you if they want to, if nothing else, congratulate you on your success? Oh, well, they can call me. 540-362-1489, or they can email me at tamia at globalmetalfinishing.com. All right. Well, there you go. I want to encourage the audience to watch a video of Global Metal Finishing that Finishing and Coding Magazine just created. It's available on YouTube, and we'll link to it in this episode's show notes on the Job Aww. Shop Show website. Yeah. And you, I'm just so excited about your world. I wish we weren't in the pandemic because talking with you to me, it makes me want to get in touch with some of these local platers who we had the relationship with and say, hey, I do want to take you out to lunch. I want to see your shop and, and learn yeah. a little more. And it's exciting. It's exciting for our employees, if nothing else, to show off what they do. So let's ask the audience, visit your plater. Yes. Please do. Well, uh, visit your plater day. And <laughs> if you can, don't wait. You're welcome to come to Virginia anytime. Be happy to go. show you our shop. Beautiful country. Until next time, let's keep those spindles turning, those lasers cutting, and we'll add today 
Hearts Coloring. Have a super day.